Chapter 8 of Our Vanishing Wildlife. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Our Vanishing Wildlife by William T. Hornaday. Chapter 8 The Unseen Foes of Wildlife. Quite unintentionally on his part, man, the arch-destroyer, and the most predatory and merciless of all animal species except the wolves, has rendered a great service to all the birds that live or nest upon the ground. His relentless pursuit and destruction of the savage-tempered, strong-jawed, fur-bearing animals is in part the salvation of the ground birds of today and yesterday. If the teeth and claws had been permitted to multiply unchecked down to the present time, with man's warfare on the upland game proceeding as it has done, scores upon scores of species long ere this would have been exterminated. But the slaughter of the millions of North American foxes, wolves, weasels, skunks, and mink has so overwhelmingly reduced the four-footed enemies of the birds that the balance of wild nature has been preserved. As a rule, the few predatory wild animals that remain are not slaughtering the birds to a serious extent, and for this we may well be thankful. The Domestic Cat In such thickly settled communities as our northern states, from the Atlantic coast to the sandhills of Kansas and Nebraska, the domestic cat is probably the greatest four-footed scourge of bird life. Thousands of persons who have never seen a hunting cat in action will doubt this statement but the proof of its truthfulness is only too painfully abundant. Unhappily, it is the way of the hunting cat to stalk unseen, and to kill the very birds that are most friendly with man, and most helpful to him in his farming and fruit-growing business. The quail is about the only game bird that the cat affects seriously, and to it the cat is very destructive. It is the robin, catbird, thrush, bluebird, dove, woodpecker, chickadee, phoebe, tanager, and other birds of the lawn, the garden, and orchard that afford good hunting for sly and savage old Thomas. When I was a boy in my teens, I had a lasting series of object lessons on the cat as a predatory animal. Our Betty was the most ambitious and successful domestic cat hunter of wild mammals of which I have ever heard. To her, rats and mice were mere child's play and after a time their pursuit afforded such tame sport that she sought fresh fields for her prowess. Then she brought in young rabbits, chipmunks, and thirteen-lined spermophiles, and once she came in, quite exhausted, half-dragging and half-carrying, a big, fat pocket gopher. With her it seemed to be a point of honor that she should bring in her game and display it. Little did we realize then that in course of time the wild birds would become so scarce that their slaughter by house-cats would demand legislative action in the States. In considering the hunting cat, let us call an incredible witness of the effects of domestic cats on the bobwhite. The following is an eyewitness report by Ernest B. Beardsley in Outdoor Life for April 1912. The locality was Wellington, Sumner County, Kansas. In the meantime, Old Queen was having a high old time up ahead, some hundred feet by then, running up the bank and back down in the draw. We had hardly caught up when up goes Mr. Savage's gun and he gives both barrels. 
I had seen nothing up to date, but I didn't have long to wait, for by the time I got up to him and the dog, they were both in the high grass and had a great big common gray Maltese house cat, and Queen had a half-eaten quail that Mr. Cat was busy with when disturbed. Well, we followed the draw across the field and got nine of a covey of sixteen that had been ahead of Mr. Cat, and about four o'clock that evening we killed another white and gray cat. While driving home that night, Mr. Savage told me that he had killed fifty or more in three or four years. They will get in a draw full of tumble grass on a cold day when quail don't like to fly and stay right with them. And even after feeding on two or three, they will lie and watch, and when the covey moves, they move. When eating time comes around, they are at it again, and to a covey of young birds, they are sure death to the whole covey. Well, Will told me never to overlook a house cat that I found as far as a quarter of a mile from a farm or ranch, for if they have not already turned wild, they are learning how easy it is to hunt and live on game and are almost as bad. We found Mr. Black and White Hunter had eaten two quail just before we killed him that evening. I would rather not write what Mr. Savage said when we found the remains of a partly eaten bird. My advice is, don't let tame cats get away when found out hunting, for the chances are they have not seen a home in months, and maybe years. And say, but they do get big and bad. When you meet one, give it to him good. And don't let your dog run up to him until he is out for keeps. I learned afterwards that was how Will knew it was a cat. Queen had learned to back off and call for help on cats some years before. In the New York Zoological Park, we have had troubles of our own with marauding cats. They established themselves in a day and quickly learned where to seek easy game and good cover. In the daytime, they lie close in the thick brush, exactly as tigers do in India but if not molested for a period of days, they become bold and attack game in open view. One bird-killing cat was so shy of man that it was only after two weeks of hard hunting, mornings and evenings, that it was killed. We have seen cats catch and kill gray squirrels, chipmunks, robins, and thrushes, and have found the feathers of slaughtered quail. Once we had gray rabbits breeding in the park, and their number reached between 80 and 90. For a time they fearlessly hopped about in sight from our windows, and they were of great interest to visitors and to all of us. Then the cats began upon them, and in one year there was not a rabbit to be seen, save at rare intervals. At the same time the chipmunks of the park were almost exterminated. That was the last straw, and we began a vigorous war upon those wild and predatory cats. The cats came off second best. We killed every cat that was found hunting in the park, and we certainly got some that were big and bad. We eliminated that pest, and we are keeping it eliminated. And with what result? In 1911, a covey of 11 quail came and settled in our grounds, and have remained there. Twenty times at least during the past eight months, winter and spring, I have seen the flock on the granite ledge not more than 40 feet from the rear window of my office. Last spring, when I left the administration building at 6 o'clock, after the visitors had gone, I found two half-grown rabbits calmly roosting on the doormat. The rabbits are slowly coming back, and the chipmunks are visibly increasing in number. The gray squirrels now chase over the walks without fear of any living thing, 
and our ducklings and young guineas and peacocks are safe once more. That cats destroy annually in the United States several millions of very valuable birds seems fairly beyond question. I believe that in settled regions they are worse than weasels, foxes, skunks, and minks combined because there are about 100 times as many of them and those that hunt are not afraid to hunt in the daytime. Of course, I'm not saying that all cats hunt wild game, but in the country, I believe that fully one half of them do. I am personally acquainted with a cat in Indiana, on the farm of relatives, which is notorious for its hunting propensities and its remarkable ability in capturing game. Even the lady who is joint owner of the cat feels very badly about its destructiveness, and has said, over and over again, that it ought to be killed. But the cat is such a family pet that no one in the family has the heart to destroy it, and as yet no stranger has come forward to play the part of executioner. The lady in question assured me that to her certain knowledge that particular cat would watch a nestful of young robins week after week, until they had grown up to such a size that they were almost ready to fly. Then he would kill them and devour them. Old Tommy was too wise to kill the robins when they were unduly small. In a great book entitled Useful Birds and Their Protection by E. H. Forbrush, State Ornithologist of Massachusetts, and published by the Massachusetts State Board of Agriculture in 1905, there appears on page 362 many interesting facts on this subject. For example, Mr. William Brewster tells of an acquaintance in Maine who said that his cat killed about 50 birds a year. Mr. A.C. Dyke wrote to Mr. Forbush of a cat owned by a family and well cared for. They watched it through one season and found that it killed 58 birds, including the young in five nests. Nearly a hundred correspondents scattered through all the counties of the state report the cat as one of the greatest enemies of birds. The reports that have come in of the torturing and killing of birds by cats are absolutely sickening. The number of birds killed by them in this state is appalling. Some cat lovers believe that each cat kills on the average not more than 10 birds a year. But I have learned of two instances where more than that number were killed in a single day and another where seven were killed. If we assume, however, that the average cat on the farm kills but 10 birds a year, and that there is one cat to each farm in Massachusetts, we have, in round numbers, 70,000 cats killing 700,000 birds annually. In Mr. Forbush's book, there is an illustration of the cat which killed 58 birds in one year and the animal was photographed with a dead robin in its mouth. The portrait is reproduced in this chapter. Last year, a strong effort was made in Massachusetts to enact a law requiring cats to be licensed. On account of the amount of work necessary in passing the No Sale of Game Bill, that measure was not pressed, and so did not become a law. But another year it will undoubtedly be passed, for it is a good bill and extremely necessary at this time. Such a law is needed in every state. There is a mark by which you may instantly and infallibly know the worst of the wildcats, by their presence away from home, 
hunting in the open. Kill all such, wherever found. The harmless cats are domestic in their tastes and stay close to the family fireside and the kitchen. Being properly fed, they have no temptation to become hunters. There are cats and cats, just as there are men and men, some tolerable, many utterly intolerable. No sweeping sentiment for all cats should be allowed to stand in the way of the abatement of the hunting cat nuisances. Of all men, the farmer cannot afford the luxury of their existence. It is too expensive. With him it is a matter of dollars, and cash out of pocket for every hunting cat that he tolerates in his neighborhood. There are two places in which to strike the hunting cats, in the open and in the state legislature. While this chapter was in the hands of the compositors, the hunting cat and gray rabbit shown in the accompanying illustration were brought in by a keeper. The caption shows, A hunting cat and its victim. This cat had fed so bountifully on the rabbits and squirrels of the zoological park that it ate only the brain of this gray rabbit. Dogs as destroyers of birds. I have received many letters from protectors of wildlife informing me that the destruction of ground-nesting birds, and especially of upland game birds by roaming dogs, has in some localities become a great curse to bird life. Complaints of this kind have come from New York, Massachusetts, Connecticut, Pennsylvania, and elsewhere. Usually the culprits are hunting dogs, setters, pointers, and hounds. Now, surely it is not necessary to set forth here any argument on this subject. It is not open to argument or academic treatment of any kind. The cold fact is, in the breeding season of birds, and while the young birds are incapable of quick and strong flight, all dogs, of every description, should be restrained from free hunting, and all dogs found hunting in the woods during the season referred to should be arrested, and their owners should be fined twenty dollars for each offense. Incidentally, one half the fine should go to the citizen who arrests the dog. The method of restraining hunting dogs should devolve upon dog owners, and the law need only prohibit or punish the act. Beyond a doubt, in states that still possess quail and ruffed grouse, free hunting by hunting dogs leads to great destruction of nests and broods during the breeding season. Telegraph and Telephone Wires Mr. Daniel C. Beard has strongly called my attention to the slaughter of birds by telegraph wires that has come under his personal observation. His country home, at Redding, Connecticut, is near the main line of the New York, New Haven, and Hartford Railway, along which a line of very large poles carries a great number of wires. The wires are so numerous that they form a barrier through which it is difficult for any bird to fly and come out alive and unhurt. Mr. Beard says that among the birds killed or crippled by flying against those wires near Redding, he has seen the following species. Olive-backed thrush, white-throated sparrow, and other sparrows, oriole, blue jay, rail, ruffed grouse, and woodcock. It is a common practice for employees of the railway and others living along the line to follow the line and pick up on one excursion enough birds for a pot pie. Beyond question, the telegraph and telephone wires of the United States annually exact a heavy toll in bird life and claim countless thousands of victims. 
they may well be set down as one of the unseen forces destructive to birds. Naturally, we ask, what can be done about it? I am told that in Scotland such slaughter is prevented by the attachment of small tags or discs to the telephone wires, at intervals of a few broads, sufficiently near that they attract the attention of flying birds and reveal the line of an obstruction. This system should be adopted in all regions where the conditions are such that birds kill themselves against telegraph wires. And an excellent place to begin would be along the line of the New York, New Haven, and Hartford Railway. Wild Animals Beyond question, it is both desirable and necessary that any excess of wild animals that prey upon our grouse, quail, pheasants, woodcock, snipe, mallard duck, shorebirds, and other species that nest on the ground should be killed. Since we must choose between the two, the birds have it. Weasels and foxes and skunks are interesting, and they do much to promote the hilarity of life in rural districts, but they do not destroy insects and are of comparatively little value as destroyers of the noxious rodents that prey upon farm crops. While a few persons may dispute the second half of this proposition, the burden of proof that my view is wrong will rest upon them, and having spent eighteen years on the farm, I think I am right. If there is any positive evidence tending to prove that the small carnivores that we class as vermin are industrious and persistent destroyers of noxious rodents, pocket gophers, moles, field mice, and rats, or that they do not kill wild birds numerously, now is the time to produce it, because the tide of public sentiment is strongly setting against the weasels, mink, foxes, and skunks. Once upon a time, a shrewd young man in the zoological park discovered a weasel hiding behind a stone while devouring a sparrow that it had just caught and killed. He stalked it successfully, seized it in his bare hand, and even though bitten, made good the capture. The state of Pennsylvania is extensively wooded, with forests and with brush which affords excellent home quarters and breeding grounds for mammalian vermin. The small predatory mammals are so seriously destructive to ruffed grouse and other ground birds that the State Game Commission is greatly concerned. When the Hunter's License Law is enacted, as it very surely will be in the next session of the legislature in 1913, a portion of the $70,000 that it will produce each year will be used by the Commission in paying bounties on the destruction of the surplus of vermin. Through the pursuit of vermin, any farmer can easily win enough bounties to more than pay the cost of his annual hunting license, one dollar, and the farmer's boys will find a new interest in life. At this point there's an illustration captioned, The Eastern Red Squirrel, a Great Destroyer of Birds. In some portions of the Rocky Mountains region, the assaults of the large predatory mammals and birds on the young of the big game species occasionally demand special treatment. In the Yellowstone Park, the pumas multiplied to such an extent and killed so many young elk that their number had to be systematically reduced. To that end, Buffalo Jones was sent out by the government to find and destroy the intolerable surplus of pumas. In the course of his campaign, he killed about 40 much to the benefit of the elk herds. Around the entrance to the den of a big old male puma, Mr. Jones found the skulls and other remains of nine elk calves that the old Tom had killed and carried there. Pumas and lynxes attack and kill mountain sheep, and the golden eagle is very partial to mountain sheep lambs 
and mountain goat kids. It will not answer to permit birds of that bold and predatory species to become too numerous in mountains inhabited by goats and sheep. And the fewer the mountain lions, the better. For they, like the lynx and eagle, have nothing to live upon save the game. The wolves and coyotes have learned to seek the ranges of cattle, horses, and sheep, where they still do immense damage, chiefly in killing young stock. In spite of the great sums that have been paid out by western states in bounties for the destruction of wolves, in many, many places the gray wolf still persists and cannot be exterminated. To the stockmen of the West, the wolf question is a serious matter. The stockmen of Montana say that a government expert once told them how to get rid of the gray wolves. His instructions were, locate the dens and kill the young in the dens soon after they are born. All very easy to say, but a trifle difficult to do, says my informant, and the ranchmen seem to think that they are a long way yet from a solution to the wolf question. During the past year, the destruction of noxious predatory animals in the National Forest Preserves has seriously occupied the attention of the United States Bureau of Forestry. By the foresters of that bureau, the following animals were destroyed in 15 western states. 213 bears, 88 mountain lions, 172 gray wolves, 69 wolf pups, 6,487 coyotes, 870 wildcats, 72 lynxes, for a total of 7,971 animals destroyed. In 1910, the total was 9,103. The Red Squirrel Once in a great while, conditions change in subtle ways. Wild creatures unexpectedly increase in number, and a community awakens to the fact that some wild species has become a public nuisance. In a small city park, even gray squirrels may breed and become so fearfully numerous that in their restless quest for food, they may ravage the nests of the wild birds, kill and devour the young, and become a pest. In the zoological park in 1903, we found that the red squirrels had increased to such a horde that they were driving out all our nesting wild birds, driving out the gray squirrels, and making themselves intolerably obnoxious. We shot 60 of them, and brought the total down to a reasonable number. Wherever he is, or whatever his numerical strength, the red squirrel is a bad citizen, and while we do not by any means favor his extermination, he should resolutely be kept within bounds by the rifle. When a crow nested in our woods near the beaver pond, we were greatly pleased, but with the feeding of the first brood, the crows began to carry off ducklings from the wildfowl pond. After one crow had been seen to seize and carry away five young ducks in one forenoon, we decided that, that the constitutional limit had been reached, for we did not propose that all our young mallards should be swept into the awful vortex of that crow nest. We took those young crows and reared them by hand, but the old one had acquired a bad habit, and she persisted in carrying off young ducks until we had to end her existence with a gun. It was a painful operation, but there was no other way. Bird Destroying Birds There are several species of birds that may at once be put under sentence of death for their destructiveness of useful birds, without any extenuating circumstances worth mentioning. Four of these are Cooper's Hawk, 
the sharp-shinned hawk, pigeon hawk, and duck hawk. Fortunately, these species are not so numerous that we need lose any sleep over them. Indeed, I think that today it would be a mighty good collector who could find one specimen in seven days hunting. Like all other species, these two are being shot out of our bird fauna. Several species of bird-eating birds are trembling in the balance and under grave suspicion. Some of them are the great horned owl, screech owl, butcher bird, or great northern shrike. The only circumstance that saves these birds from instant condemnation is the delightful amount of rats, mice, moles, gophers, and noxious insects that they annually consume. In view of the awful destructiveness of the accursed bubonic plague-carrying rat, we are impelled to think long before placing in our killing list even the great horned owl, who really does levy a heavy tax on our upland game birds. As to the butcher bird, we feel that we ought to kill him, but in view of his record on wild mice and rats, we hesitate and finally decline. There is now an illustration captioned, Cooper's Hawk, a species to be destroyed. There is now an illustration captioned, Sharp-shinned Hawk, a species to be destroyed. Snakes. Mr. Thomas M. Up, a close and long observer of wild things, wishes it distinctly understood that while the common black snakes and racers are practically harmless to birds, the pilot black snake, long, thick, and truculent, is a great scourge to nesting birds. It seems to be deserving of death. Mr. Up speaks from personal knowledge, and his condemnation of the species referred to is quite sweeping. At the same time, Mr. Raymond L. Dittmars points out the fact that this serpent feeds during six months of the year on mice, and in doing so renders good service. In the south it is called the mouse snake. At this point is an illustration captioned, Photo by A.C. Dyke, The Cat That Killed 58 Birds in One Year, from Mr. Forbish's book. End of Chapter 8 Recording by Kelly Doherty of Plano, Texas, October 29, 2007.